0: So it's interesting, and purely by coincidence, that we um, started our study on prophecy uh, last week Wednesday, and um, and we spent a lot of our time last week Wednesday actually looking at Second Peter chapter three, and we're here again this morning as we continue through our study of Second Peter. And it was coincidence on my part, and that I didn't plan it, I didn't orchestrate it that way, but it seems like the Lord has a plan there. And um, so we'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 this morning. And again, Peter's going to be kind of talking about the end times a little bit, And, and not so much the events surrounding the end times, right? We see some of that in in 2 Thessalonians and um, Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2. We see that throughout the book of Revelation, sort of these these timelines and and these events. But as we move into this chapter, Peter is talking more sort of about the the heart and the attitude that people are going to have in the last days. So go ahead and open your Bibles, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you. That's why it's called Second Peter, by the way, in case there's any questions. This is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ through your apostles. So Peter says, look. This is the second letter that I'm writing you guys and I want to I want to remind you of the things that I told you before. I want to stir up your hearts. I want to bring these things to your remembrance. He says I want to bring to remembrance the, the predictions of the prophets and the commandment of the Lord Jesus our Savior through the apostles. Now I don't know the context here but I'm kind of good at reading in between the lines. You know, I don't know what was going on in this specific church that Peter's writing to, but he's definitely giving them a message here, isn't he? Did you catch what he said? He said, remember what the prophets said. Remember what the Old Testament prophecies said. Remember the Torah. Remember what Jesus commanded through the apostles. It's almost like Peter is sort of establishing his credentials here, isn't it? He's saying, look, guys, you know that the Lord spoke through the prophets in the old days, right? You know that the Lord was speaking when he was here with us, when he gave us those commands. And he says, I want you to understand that we, the apostles, are speaking with the same authority as the Old Testament. And I've never really caught that before in all the times I've read through this. And I've often wondered as I've read through Scripture, you know, did, did Peter and Paul and John, did they realize as they are writing these letters that they were writing Scripture? Were they aware that the Holy Spirit was inspiring them and, and breathing through them as they penned these letters? And it does seem to some degree here at least that Peter was aware that what he was writing here was on par with the Old Testament scriptures. He was aware that he was speaking with the same authority as as Moses and as David and as Isaiah. So he says, look, remember what the prophets told you guys. Remember what Jesus said. Remember what we said. Knowing this, First of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. So I want to look at two things here real quick in this verse. He says scoffers will come. What is a scoffer? Okay, yeah, somebody who makes fun of stuff, right? I, I can be a little bit of a scoffer sometimes, you know. It's, it's sort of a somebody who makes a, somebody who makes a mockery of things, isn't it? Or you know, so in this context, the word can mean somebody who's like making a mockery of things, or it can also mean like a false teacher, in, in the sense that a that a mocker they're they're making a mockery of the things of God by the things that they're teaching, they're perverting it to such a degree that, that it's no longer true. And I think that both of those ideas are pretty apt. People who, who scoff and make fun of holy things and people who who falsely teach holy things until it, it's made a mockery of, of the initial intent of the word. And... And I think we see that all the time around us, don't we? People denying the truth. People denying the authority of Scripture. People denying the authenticity of Scripture. People denying the, the, the holy things of God. And we hear people all the time say things like, oh, you know, the events in the Bible. They didn't really happen. You know, it was, it was more allegorical. Right? And, and those books in the Bible, they were just written by some guy. Right? There's nothing necessarily divine about the scriptures. There's no difference between the Bible and the Iliad and the Quran and, and all these other writings. And sure, Jesus was probably a good guy if he existed. He was probably a good teacher. But I'm sure the apostles embellished, right? walking on water. Come on, do you really believe that? Right? It was a figure of speech. I'll try to say, or or that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, sure, he he he's alive in our hearts, but did he really? Is he really alive? Be reasonable, they say. And Peter talks about. It. He says, "Look, in the last days, that's what's going to happen. People are going to scoff at the things of God, and." We talked about that term last days last week. You know, a lot of times when we, when we talk about the end times or the last days in the church, we, we usually mean something like that time right before the rapture leading, maybe culminating in the seven-year tribulation period. And that's, that's the end times. That's the last days. But that's not really technically, theologically what the last days are. The last days began... The day that Jesus ascended into heaven, and they will end at the second coming, when he he returns to earth. And it's sort of, it's almost a parallel track from, um, from the church age. We talked about the church age on Wednesday as well. The church age began on Pentecost, about 10 days after the ascension, right? And the church age ends at the rapture. So the church age began 10 days after the end times, and it ends a little more than seven years before the end times. So there's sort of a a parallel track there. But I just wanted to point this out, that that Peter isn't necessarily talking about what's going to happen at the very end. He's talking about what's going to happen kind of throughout the the whole of the church age, that people are going to scoff. Scoffers are going to scoff, following their own sinful desires, he said. In the last days, people are going to mock the things of God, and they're going to do whatever it is that they want to do. They're going to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, with whoever, whoever they want to do it with. <coughs> and verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You say, look, Jesus says he's coming back. Is he, is he really, though? Where's the, where's the promise of his coming, they'll say. And, and they're not asking, where is it written that he said he's coming back? I mean, obviously, you we are right here. It's Matthew 24, right? We, we can see that. That's not what he's asking. They're saying, why should we have faith that he's coming back? What promise do we have that he's actually going to return. They say, look, ever since the fathers fell asleep, right? And he's talking about the patriarchs. He's talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and Moses and and the guys in the Old Testament. He says, look, ever since those guys died, things have been the same. And and they've really been continuing ever since creation. Essentially, they're saying this. Look, there's no God. And if there is a God, he isn't really involved in the lives of men. He doesn't really care what we're doing down here, if he even exists at all. And frankly, that's a little suspect, right? That's that whole sort of theistic attitude, right? That, that's kind of the heart of theism, that, that maybe there's a God, and he, and he set everything in motion, but he's not actively involved in his creation. He's not actively involved in the lives of men. He sort of started the ball rolling, right? He made a little snowball at the top of the hill and pushed it down, and he's just letting it go. But verse 5, it says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of the Lord. Look what he says there. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Peter says they're making a choice to overlook the facts of the situation. They're choosing to ignore the facts. They're choosing to ignore reality because it doesn't fit in the framework of what they want to believe. And look, in a a couple seconds, Peter is going to look at some of the facts that the people were deliberately overlooking. And we'll look at those in a second. But I want to make a point here. The point isn't so much the specific facts that the people were overlooking. It's that this is always how people are when they reject the truth of God's Word. People always have to find some excuse to dismiss what the Lord said, right? And and there's a lot of excuses that people use, aren't there? Well, the Bible that we have today isn't the same as it was when it was written 2,000 years ago. Well, except now we know that it is, kind of, because we found ancient manuscripts that are exactly the same as they are today. Well, you know, it may have been accurately transmitted, but, you know, the... The people and places and events that the Bible talks about, they didn't really happen. So we know that the Bible's not true. Well, except archaeology, right? And except every month, every year, there's new archaeological discoveries confirming the historical validity of Scripture. Well, okay. Maybe it's been faithfully transmitted. Maybe it's historically accurate. But this whole divine aspect, that's a little suspect. Creation, the young earth, the flood, that's nonsense. Why? Why are those things nonsense? Well, largely because it doesn't agree with the things that we've been spoon-fed in our education system. And here's the thing. If we look into the claims of Scripture with an open heart, and with an open mind, there's considerable evidence that the claims of the scriptures are true. And I've said this before, you can't prove creation, just like you can't prove evolution. Right? There's no experiment that we can conduct to conclusively prove it, unless... Andrew, when he finishes mechanical engineering, builds us a little time machine and we can fly on back there and look at it, right? We have to accept one system of belief or the other as a matter of faith. But it's not a blind faith. There's considerable evidence that we can look at. Ultimately, people reject the Bible. one reason or another, because if it's true, and it's truly the word of God, then we're accountable to it, right? If it's truly the word of God, then there must be a God who spoke that word, and if there's a God, that means that I'm not God, right? Right? If there's a God, there's somebody I have to be accountable to and I have to live in submission to somebody else. And I think, friends, that is the true heart of the matter right there, isn't it? People reject God because they want to be in charge of their lives and they don't want to have to submit to anyone. And I I believe that all rejection of God, it isn't a rejection of his existence. It's always a question of submission. So people deny that he exists, so they don't have to submit to him, so they don't have to obey him. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of the Lord. Peter says, look, these people, they choose to ignore creation, They choose to ignore the fact that the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Apparently, in Peter's time even, there were people who were saying, oh, you know, Noah's Ark didn't really happen. Basically, what they're doing is denying the the book of Genesis. They're denying creation. They're denying the flood. They're denying Adam and Eve. And here's the thing. Genesis, right, it means beginning, right? That's the very foundation of our faith. If you take away the the integrity and the validity of the book of Genesis, everything else in our faith crumbles, right? If there's no Adam and Eve, if there's no literal Adam and Eve, You know, they always say, oh, yeah, Adam and Eve, they're they're just some kind of literary construct. And they just, you know, they're, they're, they're not real people. If Adam and Eve didn't exist, then there was no original sin. If there's no original sin, guess what? There's no need for salvation. And voila. We've done away with the whole of Scripture. That's why the book of Genesis is so important. Everything that we believe is there in Genesis. The very first promises of, of, of the Messiah, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, that, that, that proto-evangelum, the, the first appearance of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, that promise that, that the seed of woman was going to come and, and crush the head of the serpent. We get rid of Genesis, we lose all of that. We lose everything. That was just a little side note. That was a bonus for you guys. Um, (coughs) Verse 7. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. (coughs) Here's the deal, Peter says. The heavens and the earth were created just like scripture says. And what's more, he says, they're being stored up for the day of judgment, stored up for fire, he says, stored up for the destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, look, you can deny the truth of Scripture all day long. You can mock and scoff and and, and disprove and discount the Bible all you want, but it doesn't change reality that God is God, and eventually he will judge the ungodly. And I don't think that Peter is, is telling us this so that we can be fearful. He's telling us this so that we can be wise. Um, Nate was making that little joke about me getting back from China this morning. Because yesterday we were, um, we were I took uh, Tess and Nate, Denise and I went down to Pike Place Market. And every time we get into a, a good sized crowd of people, I would say something like, and I'd say it kind of in a loud voice, man, every time... Ever since I got back from Guajon, I just had this fever. And people would look at me and they'd be like, jumping. And ever since that layover in Beijing, man, I just, I, I've got this cough. And uh, it was good fun. That's that kind of pastor you have. And um, so people would give me like funny looks and my bride was just giving me disgusted looks. <laughs> like, why did I marry you? I'm trapped. But just before that, we were talking to a guy who I know to be a believer. And he was so consumed with fear over this whole coronavirus thing. And it's all that he could focus on. It's all that he could talk about. And I was just thinking about that. And and I don't have to share this with you guys because you're here, right? Everybody who's not here, it's because they're scared. (laughs) That's why church is so empty today. Because they're all... So, I hope they I posted online, because. But, what did Paul tell Timothy? We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Right, and so concerning these things, we want to be wise. Don't go around licking door handles. But you know, I don't know why I say these things. My wife's probably writing a list back there of. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in terror. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, I want to be clear here in verse 8. Peter is not giving us an equation, right? He's not saying, well, you know, the six days of creation were really 6,000 years, and and that's not what he's talking about. He's not giving us this mathematical equation to, to build a whole theological framework around. He's just saying, you know, God views time differently than we do. One day on earth is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years to the Lord. I mean, he's just, he's kind of saying a couple different things, two opposite statements there. But what he's really saying is this: time doesn't exist for God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it's sort of implied that that time has a beginning point there, that God. Created time just like he created everything else, and that he exists and operates outside of time. Spurgeon said this all things are equally near and present to his view. The distance of a thousand years before the occurrence of an event is no more to him than it would be the interval of a day. With God, indeed. There is neither past, present, nor future. And, and I think that Peter is kind of echoing the thought in Psalm 40, verse or Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight is but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. <clears throat> what David is saying there, what Peter is saying here is that God is bigger than time. And he kind of is continuing to build on this theme, right? He already said in verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? And so Peter goes on, he says, guess what? The Lord isn't slow concerning his promises. Some of your translations say, God isn't slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, as some count slowness, right? He says, oh, look, you say, oh, where is the promise of his coming? Why Why hasn't he judged sin yet? Why hasn't he come back like you, like you keep saying that he's coming? Is it that God isn't paying attention? Is it that God doesn't know what's going on? Is it that he isn't involved in his creation? Peter says no. It's because he's patient and because he's loving and because he doesn't want to condemn people to hell. He wants to see people repent. He says that he isn't wi- willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to fall into judgment. And I think most parents here, we understand this principle. right? As parents, we're not hiding behind the curtain, waiting for our kids to break a rule so we can jump out and beat them with a broom handle. Well, sometimes occasionally but we for the most part we want our kids to do the right thing and we give our kids opportunities to correct their behavior we work to to give them teachable moments And this is sort of the the same idea here. The Lord is is giving us time to repent. But Peter says, look, don't mistake that patience and loving kindness for senility. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because he hasn't rained down fire from heaven, that he isn't paying attention and that he isn't keeping track. He's giving us time to repent and to turn to him. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter says, but. Right? He says the Lord is giving us time to repent. But the day of the Lord will come. Judgment will come. The patience and long suffering of the Lord will come to an end eventually. He says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When we were in Belize, our house got broken into a couple times. We had our, 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 our cars broken into a couple times. Our church was robbed four times in like one year. Denise got mugged once there. And, and, and do you know what the common factor was in all those things? I wasn't expecting a thief. That was the common factor. Right? If I had been expecting the thief, if I had been ready, I would be, I would have been hiding in the bushes with a ninja suit on, ready right? to jump out and take action. But the thieves came at times when we weren't expecting them. They came at times when we were ill-prepared. And Peter says, that's when the day of the Lord will come. in a day when you're not expecting him to return home. And he's talking here about scoffers and unbelievers, right? I know that every single one of us here are living with the daily expectation of Christ's return. right? I know that everyone here is living like, this is your last day on earth and you might stand before the Lord tomorrow. So this might not apply to you. No, it does. It applies to each one of us. He says you need to be ready because you don't know when you're going to be face to face with the Lord. Suddenly, it can all be over. Whether it's the rapture or a bus or too much fried chicken. right? At some point, we're going to close our eyes and open them in eternity. He says, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's interesting. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. I, I heard somebody talk about this once. They're talking about nuclear explosions, that, that it's Proceeded by this this huge roar. And it sort of fits the description here as we look at it. Talking about the the heavenly bodies being burned up and dissolved. Paul says in Colossians 1.17, And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Now, it's dangerous when I talk about science. Mostly because I'm an idiot. I'm not a scientist. I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about. But I'm good at reading and retaining information. And I've read that physicists, they they know the parts of an atom. You know, they know the protons and neutrons and electrons, and, and they understand how the electrons move around and all that. They can observe that. But what they don't know is what stops... The atomic structure from just flying apart. And they, you know what they call it? Some of you guys know, right? What, what do they call that that holds the atom together? Atomic glue is the term that I read. Atomic glue. You know, when I first started teaching, I could give a scientific fact and people, oh, okay, and they kind of accept it. But not now. As soon as I say something, people are checking online. Good old Wikipedia will always give you a semi-trustworthy answer about anything that you want to know. And I know at least six of you right now are Googling atomic glue to see if I'm telling the truth. It's really what it's called. And I don't know, I don't pretend to know anything about particle physics. The only particles I'm familiar with is the Captain Crunch that gets stuck in my beard and my wife points it out to me sometimes. I don't know about this atomic glue except this. I know that Scripture says that it's Jesus that holds all things together. That's what that atomic glue is. It's Jesus. Paul tells us right here. And Peter says one day the universe is going to dissolve, it's going to burn up, it's going to disintegrate in this terrible noise. It almost sounds like Jesus pulls his hand back and the atoms just whoosh. It's kind of interesting. And on that day, Peter says, we'll stand before God and give an account of our works. Peter says, you might think that he isn't paying attention. He is and he sees and he knows. And he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter says, since our situation here is temporary, since the world is temporary, remember in 1 Peter he talks about us being aliens and sojourners. In light of that, in light of the fact that creation's going to be tossed into the fireplace like an old cardboard box. He says, and I like how the King James puts it, what manner of persons ought ye to be? What sort of people should we be? How should we be living in regards to holiness and godliness? And and Peter asks that sort of rhetorically because he's about to answer it in the coming verses. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He's really into this whole dissolving the universe thing here, isn't he? He says, we're waiting for that final day of judgment, when all of creation will pass away, when it will be set on fire and destroyed. He says, when the heavenly bodies will melt away. He says, in light of all that and the fact that that's happening and and all of creation is temporal, how should we be living? Remember what he says in 1 Peter? He's quoting the Old Testament. He says, be holy because I am holy. That's how we need to be living, he says. Not legalistically, not trying to make sure and keep all the rules but living holy because that's all that's going to matter. And look what he says here. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. He says that we can hasten the return of Jesus. That the church can hasten the return of the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? That we have a role to play to some degree, and when Jesus comes back, how? I think it's by... Sharing the gospel it's through evangelism, right? It it, it seems to imply in Scripture in a couple places that there's some sort of tipping point, right, when that last person is going to be saved. And apparently the logic here that Peter's communicating is the quicker we get them saved, the quicker we get to go home, right? It's the quicker you get your work done, the quicker you go home. That's kind of what he's saying here. Now look, this passage... It's kind of a hard passage. you are talking about the, the melting away of the universe and all this stuff. But I like how it ends in verse 13 with a message of, of hope and peace and grace. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says, listen up, church. Judgment is coming to the world. God is patient, but there's an appointed time. There's an expiration date. He says, but we have this promise. Remember what he said in verse 4? They say, where is the promise of his return? Peter says, look, here it is. We have this promise of his return. We're waiting for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And we're going to talk a little bit more in the coming Wednesday nights about the new heaven and the new earth. But I want to look at this. He says, in the place where righteousness dwells. We have this, this hope of eternity. You know, and, and scoffers always refer to it as, you know, it's oh, you Christians and your pie in the sky kind of thing, you know. I don't care what they call it. I want it. I want to go. I'll take my pie in the sky. That eternity in the presence of the Lord, free from from the shackles of this life. And it's interesting, right? Peter says that we're to be striving towards holiness and godliness, right? We saw that in verse 11. And when we finally reach heaven. It's just like, it's like, okay, we've arrived. It's the, it's the fulfillment of that. It's like, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're hiking up some mountain, all that hard work, and all of a sudden you, here I am, I've arrived. That's what he's talking about here. We're, we're, we're striving towards godliness. We're striving towards righteousness. We're, we're striving towards holiness. And finally, in that last day, when we enter into his presence, We experience the fullness of that. We arrive in that place, he says, where righteousness dwells. Where there's no more struggles. There's no more temptations. There's no more pain. Just perfect, eternal fellowship with the Father. As we close, I want to circle back real quick to verse 9. Because I think it's such a powerful, important verse for us. If you don't know the Lord this morning, or maybe you do know the Lord, but you haven't been walking with him, you've been involved in sin, and you might be thinking to yourself, you know, my lifestyle, it's, God's cool with that. He's okay with me sinning. We have a little understanding worked out. Right? If he wasn't okay with it, he would have done something about it. He has. He has done something about it. He sent his son to die in your place, to forgive your sin, to bring freedom from the bondage of sin. He has done something. He's shown you patience and mercy up to this point. He's long-suffering. But it doesn't say that he's ever suffering. He's long-suffering. But don't mistake that for acceptance. Realize it as his love. That he's giving you an opportunity to repent. He's drawing you to repentance. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you, don't resist that. Don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Draw to the Lord today. It says draw close to him and he will draw close to you. If that's you, embrace his mercy. Turn from your sins and be reconciled to God today. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word, Lord. We're so grateful for your patience and long-suffering towards us, Lord that you've given us such a clear warning of judgment and opportunity to be saved, Lord. And we pray that none of us would be stiff-necked and harden our hearts against the things of God, for they would humbly walk in submission to you, Lord, and that your perfect and holy and sovereign will could be fulfilled in our lives. We ask that in the name of your Son.